This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. I'm Marissa Anderson. Today, we are rounding out a three-part series from the Coast Interagency Group of the U.S. Global Change Research Program. The series shines a light on the process of decision-making for developing, protecting, and conserving our coastal areas. The first episode discussed equity and justice in coastal planning, and the second explored what behavioral science research can tell us about making conservation and environmental decisions. In the final installment, a panel of government experts share their unique perspectives and experiences regarding the science of coastal decision-making and how the future could look if effective decision-making is adopted. Our panelists include Dr. Lisa Clow, Ocean Section Head at the National Science Foundation, Dr. Giammi Shrestha, who serves as Program Director at Linker Corporation for its Carbon Greenhouse Gas Portfolio and NOAA Center for Environmental Modeling Contract, and Dr. Libby Larson, a scientist in the Carbon Cycle and Ecosystems Office at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. They are interviewed by Dr. Candace Boyd, Director of the Environmental Protection Agency's Chesapeake Bay Program. Be sure to check out our show notes for more information on our guests, the previous episodes in this series, and links for more information. Let's jump right into today's discussion. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Candace Boyd, and I am so excited that we have an awesome panel of dynamic women with us today. We have Lisa, we have Libby, and we have Gabby. So let's start with our conversation. So here's the first question for our panelists. Panelists, why do you think it's important to understand the science of decision-making along the coast? And having considered this for a while now, what are some key things to include that support effective decision-making? Let's go in alphabetical order by last name. So Lisa, the floor is yours. Great, thank you so much, Candice. I love the coast, right? And, and I think most people do. So it's so beautiful, but it's so dynamic. And unfortunately in this climate change environment, it's only gonna continue to get more dynamic. So we have to get to a place with safe and effective decision-making so we can have a safe and inclusive coast. And I think for me, trained as a scientist, what I really now think a lot about is recognizing the emotional side of those decisions that are being made, not just the giving people more facts to get them to change the beha- their behaviors, because changing behavior, making what we need to do to get to that safe and inclusive coast happen is so important to understand the individuals and the decisions that they're making based on emotions. Lisa, I couldn't have said it better that this is not just a scientific issue, but it's also emotional and it's also behavioral. So when we give the facts, we need to make sure that we understand all of the above. Thank you so much. Let's go to our next panelist. Libby, what are your thoughts? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that part of the reason that this is such an important question is just that I believe more than the majority of people globally live pretty close to coastal areas, really talking about decisions that are affecting, you know, huge swaths of populations and peoples and communities. And so it's really, um, from that point of view, a, a crux of where that decision making is going to happen. 
And then on the other side, if you know, in thinking about the effects of climate change um, that are happening, coasts, I think, are one of the front lines that are going to be experiencing some really um, dramatic and have already been experiencing really dramatic changes um, to the environment due to climate change and other factors. So those two things combined, I think, are part of what makes coasts themselves specifically important. And then, you know, thinking about the sort of the context then of, well, how do you make decisions based on, um, you know, different types of communities, different communities in different areas, communities that are experiencing, not all, not all coastal areas are going to be experiencing the same um, issues. So there's lots of kind of local and regional things that need to be taken into consideration. Great points, Libby. I want to touch on what you just said. That's when we think about coast, coasts are not a monolith, that coastal communities are unique in terms of their needs, in terms of their resources, and also the effects that they are feeling as a result of climate change. So thank you so much. Gami, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Candice, and I wholly agree with what Lisa and, and Libby just said. I uh, personally, I, I, I was born in a landlocked uh, country, so coasts are already sacred to me. Mountains are sacred, but coasts, I, I jump. Uh, at any opportunity to visit uh, coasts in, in different parts of the United States whenever I can. Uh, I, and coasts are vital to, to millions, billions really around the world. Uh, for, for, uh, for many parts of the world, coasts are needed uh, for, for uh, business purposes, for, for importing food, uh, in, in, for, for instance, for exporting food. Um, so there are so many aspects of coasts that, that many uh, people are not thinking about. Uh, in addition to everything that we do, like, you know, going there for, you know, to get um, a, a tan perhaps, or to go to, to have fun in the ocean. When thinking about ethical decision-making, we need to be thinking about all these factors. Coasts are vital ecosystems, supporting vital life on earth, storing carbon, promoting a sequestration of carbon, carbon removal through blue carbon. And basically they're a vital component of the climate uh, system. And so we need to understand connections between each and every component in this system. We need to, to pay attention to also equity, justice, and diversity uh, when, when uh, developing any decision-making plan for any kind of project, any kind of activity, any kind of development that we need to carry out or we, that anyone's trying to plan in the coast. Being careful that, this is decision the, that the decision-making processes are are inclusive of the um, or very are inclusive of the impacts of the environment and understanding both the co-benefits and also the trade-offs of any environmental solutions in regard to both the impacts to the people, the local people, the local communities, and also the the local uh, environment, the local systems, the, the local biodiversity. Yeah, you mentioned a really good point that. It's not just one aspect that we need to look at. It's the intersectionality of so many things. When we think about coasts, coasts are important from an economic point of view. Coasts are important from an environmental point of view. And then, as you said before, we also need to think about DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion as well. So thank you so much. All right, we're going to move to our next question. Question number two, you all work for different agencies. Could you give an example of a project or program, ideally with ties to the coast, that includes input from different groups? 
And again, we'll go in alphabetical order. So let me first start with Lisa. Great. Thanks again, Candice. I'm going to talk about a fairly new program for the National Science Foundation, which is where I'm at, and we refer to it as COPE, uh, which is short for Coastlines and People. And what we're doing with COPE is we are funding hubs of convergent efforts uh, focused on solving a problem for a particular coastal area. And the unique thing about our COPE hubs is that we're looking to bring together cutting edge social and natural science. And we're requiring that there be a component of broadening participation within each of the hubs. So those how do people behave questions are in the mix. The how does the landscape change in the face of this very dynamic area that we're talking about the coast. And, and I do want to say that our, our coasts are both Great Lakes as well as ocean coasts. So we have lots of coasts uh, within the United States. And these coastal hubs, these COPE hubs, will be addressing problems from megacities to rural communities to how do we include indigenous ways of knowing. And I can't wait to see what uh, they wind up coming up with. Our, our oldest COPE hubs are only approaching the end of their first year. So we're really excited to see where they're gonna take us and change the transformative social and natural science, but also build communities and build trust. Lisa, that COPE program, it just sounds like an awesome, awesome opportunity to broaden participation. And I really liked what you said, that the COPE program is more than just our coast on the East and the West Coast. I was born and raised in Chicago, so I'm glad you mentioned the Great Lakes because Chicago is right on Lake Michigan. But also we have various communities. We have the mega cities that you mentioned. We have indigenous uh, tribes and groups that call the coast their home. And then we have a lot of rural populations as well. So understanding how each copes with our coastline is really important. So thank you, Lisa. Now let's go to Gabby. What are your thoughts? So um, I would say there are, there are so many uh, good examples and uh, I don't work for a particular federal program, but I'm aware of several excellent programs. I would say that, that, that do include uh, input from different groups. In the past, I, I think since uh, my involvement is mainly with scientific community, such programs have, I think, have, have done a really good job in um, soliciting input from uh, scientists and different scientific institutions during the process of, of formulating um, the groundwork to, to establish research uh, or programs or, or research activities along the coast. I do have to comment that some of these programs may not have done such a good job in soliciting or in, um, in, in actively including feedback from local communities or local groups. But I'm glad that this is changing. Federal agencies and, and many funders and many companies, many organizations have, have this rising awareness of, of the fact that local communities have to be included. And like you said, indigenous communities have to be part of these discussions and have to be part of the solution development uh, where those indigenous communities live if those um, activities are taking place there. And again, I, I, I would not mention any specific uh, uh, project or program, but specifically my, my two cents on this topic. Thank you so much, Gammy. You really brought up a good point that 
even though we have a lot of federal programs um, that we are working on expanding and going into communities, we also need partners. We need partners from our academic research institutions. And then we also have research centers around the country that are fueling this effort as well. So I like what you said that we really need to think about the end user, which is actually the local community. So we need to think about the various ways that we can contribute to the communities and who our partners will be before, during, and after the entire process. So thank you. All right, let's go to our next question. Our question is, please give an example of a federal project that you think effectively includes stakeholders. What do you like about it? And do you think it's applicable to other places or scales? And again, we'll start in alphabetical order. Lisa, the floor is yours. Great. I'm going to use an example from one of my sister agencies. So I just love what uh, the NOAA Sea Grant, so National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, their Sea Grant program has really put stakeholders front and center. And they've, they've done it with really three thrusts. They have a research emphasis. Um, so they do involve those academic partners and community partners, but it's in research that is directed towards the problems of the coast. They have an education piece. And again, yes, some of it is about training uh, undergrads and grad students. They have some amazing fellowship programs that the Sea Grant program sponsors, but they also do education and they do outreach within the community. So they have education practitioners associated with each of the Sea Grant offices. And finally, they have uh, sort of a, an underappreciated, in my opinion, core of extension agents. So the NOAA Sea Grant offices, and there's one for each of the, the states, so it is at a local level, even though it's a federal program, those extension agents might be someone with extensive experience in fisheries or aquaculture. And so they're available for the community to interact with and to really get to those coastal activities that need expert opinions, and those extension agents are there for the community, for the stakeholders when it comes to solving real problems that are happening throughout the, our very dynamic coasts. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm a former employee of NOAA myself, specifically OAR, and I can tell you this three-pronged approach for Sea Grant has had a really impactful presence in a lot of our communities, where you said that you have to have a research emphasis, you need to have an education piece, especially with practitioners. And then you also need to have a core of extension agents that have boots on the ground at the local level, on the state level, so that they can make sure that many of these programs are executed. So thank you so much. All right, Libby, the floor is yours. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm going to do something similar to what Lisa did and talk about a program at a, at a sister agency to mine. Um, and that's actually at her program in, at NSF. It is not a program that's specifically associated with, uh, with coasts, but they do have program that they, uh, it's a cross directorate program. So it involves many different disciplines um, called Navigating the New Arctic. And I think that they have done um, quite a lot of really important and, and exemplary work in figuring out how to better serve the needs of not just stakeholders, but rights holders. So indigenous peoples in, um, in Arctic regions across the world 
um, have more than just a stake, but they actually have a, a right to the you know land that they that they live on. And so the navigating the new Arctic program has done some really important work in terms of figuring out um, steps that can be taken to decolonialize what used to be, um, I think in many cases, quite extractive science, um, where researchers would come in from the South, study something, write a report, just give it to somebody and hope that it got used in some decision-making context. And instead thinking about the fact that in order to really produce usable and useful knowledge, that involves, as we've mentioned before, really engaging with and collaborating with the communities um, that are relevant to the places where the research is going to happen and what it means. But the thing is, is that those types of that type of research and research to inform decision making in that way doesn't um, those relationships don't just happen overnight. And so what I think is especially admirable about the Navigating the New Arctic program is that they have set up a sort of community clearinghouse for helping to um, connect readers with all of the relevant groups and, and people who are interested and decision makers in the region and giving them actual money to work together to develop research um, proposals and plans about what is going to be most impactful for them in their decision making and the, the choices that they have in front of them. And that's a big shift, I think, um, in terms of thinking about funding research um, just generally and especially um, from the federal science perspective. You made an excellent point, Libby, that I really want to touch on. And that is, even though we're doing scientific work, it's all about relationships and specifically providing information in an easy to understand manner so that decision makers can make those very important decisions. So thank you. So as I'm looking at the time, it's time for us to wrap up. But I want to hear from each of our panelists one more time. So here is our final question. Fast forward 10 years. What will our world look like if we adopt effective decision-making tactics? So we'll start with Lisa. And I'm gonna start off a bit of a downer, right? Like 10 years from now, because we didn't change in the last 10 years, an unfortunate truth is some people on the coast are not gonna be able to be home 10 years from now, right? We are locked into change. And so to me, the effective decision-making, what we have to get to is, is what we've been touching on, right? The Developing the relationships so that we can have effective transitions. We're not gonna be able to fight everywhere. So we're gonna have to adapt and to make effective decisions to get to the transitions, to get us to effective adaptation are going to require that trust and that respect and that justice piece. So I think by understanding how everyone makes decisions, getting to a point where it's what's in it for us, not what's in it for me, uh, is really going to be critical for us to, to get to a better place. And I know we can do it. Uh, humans can change their behavior really quickly. So um, if we got one another's back, we're going to get there. So maybe that's a good ending point a bit on a on a high note rather than the bummer that I started out with. Well, I do think that's a high note because it's recognizing that this is not just a science challenge, it's a people challenge. And like you said, the word that I love that you used was trust. 
It's about building trust in our community so that we can make informed decisions to move forward. So thank you, Lisa. Next, I'm going to Libby. Libby, what are your thoughts? Well, I think um, similarly to Lisa's answer, my perspective is that I, I hope that in 10 years, we um, all as a community across all different kinds of levels, whether we're talking about the federal government or state, state and local governments as well, we will be really learning how to better have all kinds of relationships together to be able to make decisions that are more just and equitable and solve the problems that we're facing, which in fact, as Lisa pointed out, are, are you know in many places quite challenging. I think recently one thing that I've been thinking a lot about and actually it goes a little bit to the prior question, which, which uh, you asked, but we didn't sort of talk about the, are things applicable? Can you take a solution from one place and apply it someplace else or scale it? And um, I think it's really important to, to be thinking about um, scaling and, and transferability, but more and more, I personally have been become convinced that the specific solutions themselves are not the pieces of that that work and that will get us to a good place 10 years from now, but more about refining and expanding the process that we use to be able to engage with each other, to um, to answer questions and make decisions. And I think that that's the part, those are the parts that, that really I hope will flourish in the next 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. It's more than just the science, but it's the process of getting to the actual goal. So thank you so much, Libby. All right, and our last words for this podcast, Gammy, what are your closing thoughts? Thanks, Candice. I tell my daughter all the time, life is about choices. For those who are who have the privilege to make those choices, and it is really undeniable the fact that in ten years, in fact, many coasts may not be there anymore. There may not be those uh, coastal cities may not be there. Those coastal habitats may not be there. Those of us who can make those choices, who are in those places, in, in those privileged uh, situations where we can make choices or push or for choices. To, to avoid um, such a scenario, uh, I would say that with effective decision-making tactics in, in 10 years, the, the world might get to a path where, where coasts and, and all ecosystems with, with human habitats or, or human activities are, are sustainably protected, maintained, or, or managed with a, with a holistic and, and equity-centered and science-based approach that is focused on, on mitigating climate change impacts and and solving some of, or most of humanity's most pressing problems. I think that is a great way to leave our podcast conversation, that the decisions that we make, it's equity-centered, it needs to be based on trust, building relationships, applicability, and of course, life is about choices and making sure that we have sound science to make those choices. So again, thank you to Lisa, thank you to Libby, and thank you to Gammy for a great podcast discussion today. Have a great day, everyone. Today's panel discussion was moderated by Dr. Candace Boyd, Director of the Environmental Protection Agency's Chesapeake Bay Program. The panelists were Dr. Lisa Clow, Ocean Section Head at the National Science Foundation, Dr. Giami Shrestha, Program Director at Linker Corporation for its Carbon Greenhouse Gas Portfolio, a NOAA Center for Environmental Modeling Contract, and Dr. Libby Larson, 
a scientist in the Carbon Cycle and Ecosystems Office at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Make sure you check out the show notes for details on our guests, the other episodes in this series, and additional links. This interview was edited and produced by Ashley Scarlett of Absolutely Smashing Events and Consulting. This podcast series was developed in collaboration with the U.S. Global Change Research Program's COAST Interagency Group and funded by Adaptation Sciences, or ADSCI for short, a group out of NOAA's Climate Program Office. Ideas expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the position of the U.S. Global Change Research Program or its member agencies. We hope you enjoyed this series, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next month with the NOAA Ocean Podcast.